Good morning, Sailorville. If you brought a copy of Scripture with you this morning, you can find the book of Exodus and the seventh chapter, Exodus chapter seven, as we continue in our series, Journey to Freedom, in the book of Exodus. If you lived in the latter part of the last century, as many of you have, you know that uh, the name Muhammad Ali uh, needs uh, no introduction. He was virtually known, probably the most well-known man on the face of the earth for at least a period of time. Uh, his illustrious career included uh, an unprecedented, never repeated, uh, three heavyweight championships. Uh, one of the more famous fights, and perhaps his greatest one, was against George Foreman, who was the heavily favored heavyweight. He was literally pummeling people to the canvas before he met Ali. Almost everyone thought he would knock Ali out, except that just the opposite occurred after eight rounds of fighting in what was called the Rumble in the Jungle in Africa. Before an estimated eight, or I'm sorry, an estimated one billion people, this is 1974, one billion people watched this fight. Ali knocked him out. The powerful and heavily favored Egyptians, that superpower was about to go down, but they would not go down until the 10th round in their fight with Yahweh. And yet during their fight, God would actually knock out a series of their gods before he laid down the ultimate haymaker. A not so well fact is that every plague, listen to this, every plague that God leveled toward Egypt was targeted to specific gods of Egypt. In fact, the scripture says as much in the 12th chapter, on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments, I am the Lord. This is what God was doing, remember that, as he worked his way through these plagues. Now, there are 10 plagues. The word plague, it's mentioned in chapter 8. The word means a stroke. It means a blow. It means a punch. That's what it means. And it was not like, I don't want you to think 10 plagues, 10 gods, you know, God knocking down. In fact, actually, it was more like 10 gods for every plague. Remember, these Egyptians worshipped thousands of gods. And there were several gods interconnected with the main god he was knocking down in each plague. And we'll identify those specific gods as we go. But each plague actually knocked out several so-called gods, pummeling them to the canvas, so to speak, with blows from heaven. The Egyptians were both polytheistic and pantheistic. So if you're a polytheist, poly means many, theist means God, you worship many gods. We've already got that, and we've said that several times. They're also pantheistic, which basically means pan means all. They just, everything is God. So while chucking babies into the Nile as unwanted garbage, they were worshiping land and sky and water and animals and insects. It's unimaginable, isn't it, that you'd kill babies and give your attention to other things? Hmm. The ten plagues would be God's way of knocking out all their gods. And the reason is very simple, and it's in the text where you're at. I mean, if you'll recall, when, we, when, they first, when the encounters began, 
Pharaoh asked Moses, who said, let my people go. Pharaoh asked, who is Yahweh? Who is the Lord? To which uh, here is the response in chapter 7, verse 17. By this you shall know that I am the Lord. And that actually should be capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, just like it is in your Bibles. Yahweh. Listen, God will not tolerate being just one among other gods. Did you hear that? He doesn't share his glory with others. The plagues would not only knock out other rival gods, but they would exalt the real king of the world. That's what Ali used to call him. I'm the king of the world. There's only one king in this world. Amen? And God would demonstrate it as never before in these plagues. And by the way, God does the same thing in your life and in mine. He is out to destroy all rivals in your life. The great reformer John Calvin said that our hearts are idol-making factories. You've heard that before, but more importantly, you know it to be true, don't you? Tim Keller, in his great book, Counterfeit Gods, writes, A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. Can you identify anything like that? Of course, the big ones come to mind, like money and sex and power, but there are many other gods, and some of you are cherishing them. If I cherish iniquity or Little idols in my heart, the Lord won't hear me. Have you ever read that? And knocking them out of your life is necessary for your freedom on this journey and your service and your worship. So let's watch how God KO'd uh, the first four gods, uh, or rather the first four, at least uh, with these first four plagues. The first one is water to blood. Uh, Chapter 7 and verse 14 is where we we pick it up. Chapter 7 and verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. So Pharaoh, go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him. And take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me saying, let my people go that they may serve me. And remember we talked about serving and worshiping being the same in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink. And the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, the canals, the ponds, all their pools of water, so that they may become blood, and there shall be blood throughout the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone, and so it was. Water is life. You know that, right? You can only live like eight days without it. In uh, the Midwest, we just sort of take it for granted. But in the Middle East, it's like exceedingly precious. It's life and death stuff. 
During the, the famous Six-Day War in 1967, where Israel whipped all these radical Muslim nations all around them and, and inside of a week, uh, those who know their history know that the war actually started two and a half years earlier because Syria to the north uh, was, was, with their bulldozers, they were diverting the, the headwaters of the Jordan to go into Syria because the Jordan River was the life blood of Israel. And that's, Israel went in there and basically bombed the bulldozers. <laughs> And kept the water going. The Nile River in Egypt was literally the life of Egypt. And they had several gods and goddesses connected to the Nile. The god Nu was the, N-U, was the god of the life of Nile. The god Happy or Hoppy was the god of the flood. He wouldn't be very happy after this. I've got a few other cheesy ones, so hang in there with me. The god Kunin was the, was the guardian of the Nile, and the goddess Isis was the goddess of the Nile. And there will be a test. I'm kidding. There was an ancient prayer that pharaohs would pray when they went down to the Nile, as the text says Pharaoh did in Moses' met him. He may very well have been praying it as Moses, uh, that is, uh, interrupted him. And here's the prayer. Hail to thee, O Nile, that issues from the earth and comes to keep Egypt alive. And then, oh, by the way, there was one more God. Osiris, the God of the Nile. Egyptians believed, wait for it, at Osiris's, the Nile was Osiris's bloodstream. You want blood? I'll give you blood. And God took on the first of Egypt's gods by meeting them right at their source. And by the way, the Egyptians hated blood. They didn't believe in blood sacrifices. In fact, in chapter 8, when he's going back and forth with Moses, do we have that text? Chapter 8, verse 26, there it is, yeah. But Moses said, this is where uh, uh, Pharaoh says, go ahead and make your sacrifices in the land. Moses said, it would not be right to do so for the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we, if we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, won't, won't they stone us? He, he wasn't exaggerating. They didn't believe in, in, in blood sacrifices. The, the miracle turned every water source in Egypt, including the reservoirs, into bloody, stinking, sticky, disgusting, putrefying cesspools of blood. Now, liberal commentators, they just don't know what to do. They say, well, you know, maybe it was the red sediment, uh, sediment rather, that was coming up from the south, because actually the Nile, as you look at a map, runs south to north. And, uh, and, and maybe it was a reddish algae mixed with microorganisms but if that were true, why call the Egypt? Why call the magicians in? That's what he did. I mean, magicians just say, "Hey, this is one of those hundred-year phenomena." You know, not the case, not at all. And, and in verse twenty-two, it says, uh, "But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts." This would be funny if it wasn't so pathetic. Pharaoh's magicians duplicated the miracle. You, you think you can make us miracle? Uh, are miserable? Uh, we can make us miserable too. <laughs> By the way, that's what idols are. They're just stupid. 
So this went on, verse 25, for seven long, hard, stinking days of blood and deadness from a river of life. As one river, God, after another, was being pummeled by the king of kings. They ended up, the Bible says, digging water, or digging in the, uh, the area uh, near the aisle just to come up with water to survive. It went on for seven days because after eight, people start dropping dead. And by the way, if you're going to trust your idols, you better grab a shovel because you're going to need it. And yet, verse 22 says that Pharaoh's heart remained hardened. I asked you last week. I'll ask you again. How's yours? Let's move on to plague number two, frogs. Nothing like a frog to make you miserable, huh? Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile will swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house, into your bedrooms, on your bed, on your houses, your servants, your people, and into your ovens and in your kneading bowls. I just, I just think that's so funny. The frogs shall come up on you and your people and all your servants. I think, to me, this is a funny miracle almost. I, I, mean, if, if, I mean, if a plague can be funny, it shows you God's sense of humor. I mean, I mean you, he wants you to pictures. They're even in the kneading bowls. And every time I read this, I think of when I was a kid, when I was a little boy, my, my, my folks got, my little brother and I, we were number eight and nine, they got us two little itsy-bitsy turtles. Remember when you could buy those little itsy-bitsy turtles? And one day, one of them came up missing. And, it, and I, I, I think it was mine, but I said it was my, my brother Bobby's. But anyway, my older brother Steve was a teenager, and he was showing off with a friend. True story. He took a tennis racket, put that little turtle on there, and bounced it on it. And it went whack. It went all the way across the room, through the narrow corridor in our kitchen, and right into the cake batter my sister Sue had just poured into a pan. She didn't know it had gone in. True story. Steve walked in, looked over. He didn't know what to do. He saw just the, the head of it. He just kind of pushed it down and walked away. She baked the turtle. Not kidding you. The frog goddess was called, there was a frog goddess called Hecta, or Hecta, pronounced differently. Just think about it. The frog goddess was Hecta. I mean, if the Egyptian women found this in their bowls, they probably cursed him. What the? Anyway. The idol, this is just, this, the, the humor doesn't stop here. The idol of the frog god was a head of a frog. It was thought to assist Egyptian women when they bore children, protect the baby. But here's the funny. Frogs were sacred in Egypt. You couldn't kill them. They were like a cow in India today. I mean, even, I mean, even more humorous, if you look at chapter 8, verse 7, the magicians make more frogs. It's like, God, you want frogs? I'll give you frogs. <laughs> he couldn't even kill them. But by this time, Pharaoh is disgusted. He's really disgusted. 
And he pleads with Moses to ask God to take them away. Now, this is really, really interesting here. And this is in verses 13 and following chapter 8. This is, this is pretty crazy. And the Lord, uh, so, uh, so uh, it says, and the Lord, uh, verse 13, and the Lord did according to the words of Moses, the frogs died out. But earlier, it's, oh, okay, back up in, to verse 9. Uh, Moses said to Pharaoh, be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people, that the frogs be, uh, be cut off from you and your house. You'd almost expect him to say, you want me to just take them out now? But he asked Pharaoh when. Look what Pharaoh says in verse 10. See it? Tomorrow. Do it tomorrow. We got frog coming out of our noses. Why would he do this? I think Moses asked him because he wanted to show Pharaoh who was in charge, who was in control, that frog plague. And Pharaoh said tomorrow, because he was holding off, that maybe his gods could come through and stop it before the next day. Either way, the, the, uh, the answer is the same. God is in charge. And again, there's that hard heart of Pharaoh's again in verse 15. And by the way, when they got, when, when, when this thing, I mean, when Moses would pray, and, the, and he did pray the next day, and the, they piled up these frogs, and it tells us at the end of verse 14 that the whole place stunk. Remember that. Let's go to the third plague. Gnats is how your Bibles put it, but it was, they were, it was probably lice. Uh, chapter 8 and verse 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your hand, strike the dust of the earth so that it becomes become gnats or lice. That's the Hebrew word. Is, it, it's very difficult to know what they were, but Mo, I, think, I think the evidence lands on lice in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth. And there, there were lice on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became lice in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried their secret arts to produce lice, but they could not. So there were lice on man and beast when the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Pharaoh's heart was hardened, wouldn't listen. Lice. The very dust became whatever these nuisances were. And these, by the, and these first four plagues are basically just disgusting plagues, nuisances. Uh, the earth god was called Geb. And uh, whatever, you know, Geb was supposed to be protecting the earth, and God creates lice out of the dust of the ground. Have you ever had lice? Anybody here ever had lice? Raise your hand if you had lice, okay? Three people want to admit it. Well, lice, you know, that's for the dirty people, you know. Our whole house had it here years ago. And, you know, we had a lot of kids, so we're, and my, my wife, my first wife had really long black hair, and she, ha, she got lice, and I spent hours, an entire evening, just combing through her hair, taking out these one egg after another egg after another. We, we, we had to wash everything. We had to, it took us days to disinfect this. And I tell you that because, listen to this, the Egyptians were absolute clean freaks. They were clean freaks. If they, the Egyptians of that day would have lived today, they'd been hitting every sanitary dispenser they could find. And the distinction here is that the magic has run its course with the magicians, and they have to confess, this is the finger of God. 
And speaking of God's finger, why didn't God just do what he would do in Daniel's day later on? Remember that, you know, and with Belteshazzar and that pal, many, many, tekel, and your days are numbered. Your kingdom's over. You're toast. Why didn't he just say, why didn't he just write in the sky, let my people go? That would have got to him. Why did he do that? Because I give the verse again. You may have missed the word. On all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments, says the Lord. So it's not like, it's not like, okay, maybe knocking this one out will do it. He's knocking them all out, every one of them, one by one, to the canvas to show that he is God. One more, the flies. The flies. Oh, the flies. Same type of thing happens here. There are distinctions. You've got flies everywhere. It says, let my people go. He doesn't. The place flies everywhere. Verse 22 says, but on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen. That's where the Israelites were, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there. And you'll know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign will happen. I don't have many pet peeves, but flies are one of them. They are disgusting. They are bred, born, fly, live, and die in filth. And they go from filth, I mean, they literally go from, um, I was going to say the word, but you guys got sick of it a few weeks ago, but you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> to your apple pie. Now, there's a couple of gods that God would have been knocking down with this plague. But one of them was one that we're familiar with in the New Testament. It was the god Baal-zebub. Baal was a common god in the old... Baal-zebub, Beelzebub. Beelzebub means, wait for it, Lord of the Flies. He was the protector of the land from flies. And Jesus would connect Satan with Beelzebub. And the distinguishment in this plague is that, is that his is, is between God's people and the Egyptians. And from here on in, the Israelites in the land of Goshen, that's the upper, uh, probably the eastern side of the Delta, uh, Nile Delta, that's where we think Goshen was. Uh, they were exempt from all those plagues. Can you imagine? Not just the plagues and the awfulness of the plagues, but there were the Israelites, nothing. No flies. No hail, no coming, and we'll see these next week, plagues. And why? Why is that? Is it because the Jews were better people than the Egyptians? Yes or no? No, they weren't. But they were God's people, and that made all the difference. If you're a Christian, I mean a real born-again Christian, you are promised, according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, that you will be saved from the wrath to come. Hallelujah. But watch it. Not because you're good, but because you're God's. That's it. Not because you're good, but because you're God's. And that begs the question, are you God's? Are you really God's? Is there evidence 
of distinction in your life? As we look at the lessons on how God knocked out the, knocks out, rather, how he knocks out idols in our lives, there's one more thing I want you to note in chapter 8, verses 25 and 28. Just look at it, if you would, please. Uh, this is where, you know, it's getting pretty pathetic. These nuisances are starting to wear on Pharaoh. And Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, go and sacrifice to your God within the land. See that? Go and sa- Moses said, I, I need to go three days journey outside the area here. Remember, we know why. Couldn't sacrifice within it. Egyptians were, were, would, would have been repugnant. They would have been killed or they would have been persecuted. Pharaoh says, go ahead and do it within the land. And remember, we told you already why Moses said that. You can't do that around here. We must go three days journey into the wilderness, verse 27, and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. And so Pharaoh said, I will let you go sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far. Pharaoh is a type of Satan. We've said that before. We say it again. He always seeks a compromise. You're seeing two of them right here. And this leads us to these lessons I want to conclude our time on. When it comes to your idols, when it comes to your idols, listen carefully, Satan doesn't mind lengthening your chain so long as you're still on his chain. That might be the only thing some of you need to hear today. Satan doesn't mind letting out more chain just as long as you're still on his chain. It's called compromise. It might be a good business strategy, but it's devastating to your walk with God. When P.T. Barnum, the famous circus guy, back in the 1800s, saw how amazing Charles Haddon Spurgeon was as a preacher, he thought, I could get tons of money, I could make gobs of money if I could get Spurgeon to come and preach under my big tents. I could get tens of thousands of people to come. So he sent Spurgeon a letter. He said, I'll, be, I'll keep the gate, but I'll pay you $1,000 every time you speak. Guys, do you realize what $1,000 would have been like in the 1800s? Spurgeon wrote back to P.T. Barnum and said, thank you so very much for this kind gesture on your part. Uh, my answer to your question is found in Acts 13.10. And then he signed his name, which says, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, How much longer will you pervert the right ways of God? That's one way to deal with him. He was not going to be compromised, and neither should we. The chains that the devil has on some of you by way of idols, he's happy to let them out. You do them not so much. You know, you look at that pornography every so-and-so, not every day, just a little bit. You know, you flirt with that that individual out there, not a lot, just once in a while. You, you know, you're, you're, you're cheating on the taxes, but not, not, like, not like the guy down the street is che- cheating on his. Satan does mind lengthening your chain as long as you're still on his chain. Secondly, you're not going to change God's mind, but you should let God change yours. Did you see how consistent God was throughout this entire battle? Repeat, let my people go. Let my people plague. Let my people go. Plague. Let my people go. Plague. Let my people go. It reminds me of Jonah. Jonah, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it. Okay, no. Opposite direction, right? 
goes down, finds a ship, takes off, gets into a storm, gets thrown out, swallowed by a fish, spit back up on land, finally makes his way up into Nineveh, and God says in chapter 3, oh, by the way, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach against it. Doesn't change. And, and that really is, that's, that describes some of your life. You say no to God. You won't, let, you won't change your heart. You won't change your mind. You won't repent. And you go through all this. You get swallowed by the whales of this world, so to speak. And then God comes back. and He doesn't change. I am the Lord. I do not change. Malachi 3.6 says that. And you can believe it. Now, Pharaoh kept changing. He was very fickle. And he, he's, he's a description of people who, who make decisions, but they never follow through. And it doesn't really matter. What do you, but what do you have to repent of? God doesn't change, but he wants us to. The choice is yours. Thirdly, you can keep following your idols, but sooner or later, they'll what? Say it. They'll stink. And twice we're told that of these plagues, the blood and the frogs particularly. I remember leaving a camp many years ago, and we, we become friends with this couple. And uh, they were friends of ours, and, and uh, as we were leaving, uh, we, we left the camp before they did, and they were like smiling at us and kind of laughing and smiling as they were driving. I thought, what? That, I look, what's so weird? She, they're la They'd stuck fish underneath my seat. And so they're just smiling. I thought, well, that, they were acting just like the devil. That's just like your life. You continue to cherish your idols. Eventually, they'll stink. And you hold on to them. I've watched men lose marriages, kids lose relationships, friends fall by the wayside, all over idols that we cherish. Last thing I'd say is God will not exalt himself to you until you exhaust yourself of your idols. The writer of Proverbs put it best, whoever covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. Have you read that? I love this quote from Vance Havner. It's worth memorizing. Take a picture of it or something. We cannot expect God to take away our sins by forgiving them. If we won't put them away, if we're not willing to put them away by forsaking them. That is a beautifully balanced statement right there. This, this, this gets after the pray the prayer stuff. I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. Our, you know, God says forsake the idol. We cannot expect God to take away our sins by forgiving them if we're not willing to put our sins away by forsaking them. This should be happening simultaneously. God would exalt himself to Israel, but only after, make, after they made a clean break from Egypt. And so the question I have for you as we, as we end up, what needs to go in your life? Only after you leave that idol can you look back in humility and gratitude to God for putting you on the journey to freedom. Every day, Every day, 45 years later, George Foreman, 45 years after the rumble in the jungle, Ali's dead, Foreman's still alive, you know, he makes the, you know, whatever that, the, whatever you call that thing. Yeah, whatever that grill is. Every day he opens his computer. Every day he opens his computer. 
This is what he sees as a screensaver every day. He was a world champion, the guy laying on the deck. But that's what he looks at every day. He opens up his screensaver and he says, this just reminds me to be humble and stay humble. If this message knocks you down from idols that you're cherishing, praise the Lord, thank him, and then knock out your idols. Every day we open our Bibles and read the stories of David and Goliath and Elijah and the prophets of Baal, Moses and Pharaoh, and Jesus and his enemies, then see the cross. We remember when we were lying in in our own cesspool of sin and defeat, and then we see our champion, the king of kings, the king of the world, and praise him for knocking out our sins and then picking us up off the canvas, which was very nice of him to do, amen? and making us champions right along with him, more than conquerors through him who loved us, right? Listen, I remember watching an interview of George Foreman several years ago, and uh, he was, when he was trying to knock Ali out before Ali knocked him out, he was just wailing away at him, wailing away at him in the corner. And Foreman said, in the middle of it, Ali could sense that Foreman was tiring out. And he went like this. He goes, hey, is that all you got, George? Is that all you got? And he like this. Is that all you got, George? Is that all you got? And Foreman goes, and I thought to myself, yep, that's about it. <laughs> and bang, Ali knocked him out. I tell you that because I think some of you are just weary if your truth be told and you're true to your own heart, you're weary of your idols. Maybe you should say, yep, that's about it. And die to them. Go to the cross. Remember the one who died for those idols so that he might reign as king in your life. God, thank you. Thank you so much for your word, for your truth. Thank you for this powerful story. And we know, God, there's coming a day when the plagues of Egypt will pale in significance of what you're going to do as you bring about a new heaven and a new earth. As Jesus comes again, and we look forward to that day. But dear God, we do ask that you would exalt yourself in our midst today and for those who are laden with idols in their lives. You know what it is, dear friend. You know what that idol is. It might be just as, it might be, your, it might be a child. It might be your marriage. It might be your job. It might be your righteous stand that you have. You're so proud of yourself. Give it to God. Let him knock it out of your life. So that you might exalt, be exalted because if we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, he will exalt us and due time. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand.